that's what it's all about, doing things in practice and preparing for what's going to happen in the game. So every player, when something happens in the game, says to himself, I've been there before. So it has to be very organized, fast-paced, game speed, and uh, I really believe that practice uh, preparation is the most important thing a coach can learn. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gilner. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud, the official voice of data. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. And this provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. The future of recruiting and player development is here and go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. Now, today we have the pleasure of listening to the SEC's all-time winningest coach, Ron Polk. And on the show, Coach Polk and I discuss how he developed his baseball playbook, we discuss how we can make our practices more efficient, and we may get into some stories about Rafael Palmero and Will Clark. Because Coach Polk's baseball playbook has been such a huge influence on my career, we're going to do a giveaway, and all you have to do is share or retweet the show and tag at AOTC underscore podcast and at Coach Ron Polk. The more you share, the better your chances are to win, and we will choose a winner one week after the show airs. But be sure to check out the baseball playbook from his website, thebaseballplaybook.com. And when you buy on site, you get the ebook for free when you purchase the paperback for $30 with free shipping. And you can get the ebook for $15. Both options include a bonus Coaching Legends VIP ebook as well. And like I said, this was one of the first books that I had ever had purchased for me as a coach, and it is well worth the investment. But let's get into the show with the legend himself, Ron Polk. Coach Polk, thank you so much for joining us on Ahead of the Curve today. Nice to be with you, Jonathan. You know, as we were talking before we started or we hit the record button, that your baseball playbook is something that has been a huge influence on my coaching career. And and whenever I was a coach my first year, my head coach at the time said, hey, do you have Ron Polk's baseball playbook? And I was like, I, I don't read, right? Because, you know, I'm, I'm 22 and I, I think that I probably know everything, right? Because I played a little bit of college baseball. And, and so, hey, he goes, hey, let me buy one for you. And I kid you not, and, and I promise that I wouldn't endorse anything that I didn't believe in, but... I still have that same playbook today, and, I, and I'm going to post a, a picture on social media about, of all the different things that I've highlighted and all the different tags, and it's, it's, pro, it's about seven or eight years old now, but it is absolutely fantastic, and, and I hope that our listeners will go out and purchase that just because it's, a one, it's one source that has literally everything that you would possibly need as a coach, but I want to know, how did you get started with that? When I got my first head job at Georgia Southern University in Statesville, Georgia, 1972. Uh, I was by myself pretty much without an assistant. I felt like I had to pass out everything that I wanted the guys to be prepared for, for practice and games. And, mm-hmm. you know, bump defenses and double steals and I pick plays and where you're supposed to go in every situation. And so I, I kind of started typing it in and using a ruler to do the diagrams and running them off on a uh, a copy machine, not much of a copy machine then, but more of a civil machine. And, and uh, so I passed them out to the guys and said, this is what we're going to be doing tomorrow, kind of read it. And I got to thinking, why don't I just put all this stuff in, in book form? So 
I did it, and then I had enough copies made for every pair of George's Southern. So when I was starting to do all these clinics around the country, uh, I mentioned to the people listening to me, the coaches, high school, junior college, and Collins, that I got this playbook that I have our players own, and they give it back at the end of the season. It's like another coach to me. It's like a, a textbook. So if mm-hmm. we're going to work on pick plays at second base, I said, I read page 105 to 115, be prepared for tomorrow. So I didn't have to spend a lot of my time going over everything. We'll execute and we'll make corrections and adjustments as you execute what we're done. Same thing with bunt defense plays, everything. So everywhere I went, people would come up to me after and said, can I get one of those books? I only got 35 books from my players. And I remember one coach coming up and said, I'd pay anything for that book. This is what I need. I need to have something to give to my players. And I got to thinking, well, maybe I just need to make it better. So I, I retyped it all and added a few more pages and a few more things. And then all of a sudden, people who were teaching baseball coaching classes said, I need that book for my class. So <laughs> I had uh, somebody write test questions for my book. And all of a sudden, I had fallen colleges and universities using my playbook as a textbook in the baseball theory class. And unfortunately, most of those classes are no longer offered. So that's not good for, for sales, but I still do very well. But finally, I said, I, there's too many people want this thing. I think it's, it's necessary. I'm the publisher. I have to do it myself, box the books, do everything, everything, seal them, bill them, take them to the post office of UPS. And finally, I decided I'm going to have it professionally done, which I did. It took me two years to put it together, make it 572 pages, and now it's cleaned up. Uh, the lines are no longer done by a ruler. They're done in professional print. And uh, then the book sales just kept going and going without any advertising whatsoever. I think we were over 115,000 books sold. and Probably could have sold a half a million if I had a publisher, but I decided to do it myself. And so it's been real good. I really enjoyed doing it, and uh, I appreciate uh, the comments you make about the book. And there's a lot of videos out now, but there's no book that covers everything from the first meeting and how to train a PA announcer and mm-hmm. train a first-base coach and a third-base coach and how to do this, how to do that. But basically, it's for the kids to have in their possession, just like they do an English textbook or a history textbook. Oh, definitely. And I'll, again, mentioning this before we started recording, now that you've got a digital copy, so what I'll do is I'll, I'm not a head coach yet. I hope to be someday. But if I wanted to search, hey, what should the PA announcer say? And, you know, with with the added digital copy, which is nice, you can go up to the search bar and you can say, how do I train the third base coach? Or how do I, where is the, where is this specific thing that I'm looking for? And so I just do that on my iPad, which is absolutely fantastic. And again, I, I just, I'm so thankful and, and grateful that you were able to hop on the mic with us and, and share some of that. But, you know, getting into how you've sustained excellence for so long, you are the SEC's winningest coach in, in, in the history. And looking back, you know, what are your thoughts on how you sustained excellence for really so such a long period of time? Because you'll see some sometimes, you know, teams will have really good five-year stretch or even a two- or three-year stretch. But, you know, looking back and, and really reflecting on how you were able to be so good for so long, what do you think that you guys did differently than everybody else did? So, Jonathan, this is uh, my 53rd year coaching college baseball. I'm in my 11th year at University of Alabama, Birmingham, working with a former coach with me at Mississippi State, Brian Shooter, the volunteer coach. It's basically a full-time job. And then I coach up in the Cape Cod League in the summer with the Highness Harbor Hawks ball. And that's where all the best college players play with great weather, a lot of scouts. And, 
and I, I enjoy that because I, I like to work with really solid, really good baseball players. And mm-hmm. I did seven tours with the national team. So this, this experience up at the Cape reminds me a lot of my involvement with the USA baseball team at the national level. But uh, I started in 1966 as a graduate assistant at the University of Arizona. And I really didn't know if that was going to be my calling. And all of a sudden I got the bug and went to nine different schools. And thankfully never got fired. And it seemed like a, I never did an interview for a job. I was always offered better opportunities, and finally I got into the Southeastern Conference in December 1975 as the baseball coach at Mississippi State and then spent 31 years in that league, and, and uh, two at Georgia and the rest of them at Mississippi State, and then I retired because of my complete uh, differences with the NCAA in regard to the way they treat college baseball players and coaches, and that's mm-hmm. something we can talk about later if possible, and and uh, But, you know, I've been surrounding myself with good people. In fact, uh, just as an example, five of my former assistant coaches have now become the president of the American Baseball Coaches Association. Awesome. And, uh, and nobody else has anybody, any, anybody one. So I get five of my former guys, <laughs> my former coaches who have been presidents of the APCA, which just tell you, I'm pretty good at carrying coaches that the boys relate to. Very good technique, very organized, very detailed, and and uh, that's one of the reasons I think I've had success. I I try to surround myself with good managers, good trainers, and try to recruit quality young men that uh, you know have an interest in playing baseball, maybe at the next level, and uh, make sure they're good students and good people. And for the most part, I've been somewhat successful only because I surround myself with good people. Oh, I love that, and I love that answer, and. You know, that's that's one big reason why I decided to start a podcast is because I, you know, I realized that I wasn't very good and that if I got to interview guests such as yourself and, and you know, get in, immersed into the world of, of better people than myself, then I would obviously have to step up my game. And I love that. But tell us, you know, something that that I'm having to personally go through right now and something that our team, we, you know, we I was not here, but in the spring, the team that I'm on now or coaching with now at Union High School won the 6A state championship in baseball, and you guys won countless championships. And so how do you maintain that elite culture from year to year? So you guys may have had a, let me just give you a situation. You guys won an SEC championship the year before. What do you do to really deal with the, you know, contentment that may be creeping into your locker room or, or how do you keep those guys motivated to do the same thing they did the year before? Well, most of my years were in the Southeastern Conference, and I've mm-hmm. seen it grown from the time I got my first job in 75 to now with these facilities and media and SDC TV now and big press box, great press following. And and uh, I think in the SEC, uh, basically, uh, you got to work every year because the next year, if you don't, thank God you're going to get beat. Uh, and I think that's motivation for the kids. Uh, they're trying to play professional ball at the highest level, and Hopefully they can get that opportunity of playing college baseball in the Southeast Conference. But, you know, every year is different. Of course, the professional draft can wipe you out. You don't know what juniors are coming back. You have a great recruiting year in college baseball with high school and J.C. kids, and all of a sudden the recruiting year becomes the worst of the conference because everyone that you wanted to come in got drafted mm-hmm. and signed a pro contract. And this is this is something unique to college baseball that other sports don't even fathom in addition sure. to the low scholarships that we have in D1 baseball, but it's not easy to do, and there's ups and downs. You know, I could have a great year every year, and you basically surround yourself with good people, have a plan, not only academic plan, but social plan, and a 
practice plan, and hopefully your kids connect and they stay healthy because the depth, depth in college baseball is real minimal because of the lack of scholarships. So you got to be lucky. you got to be very lucky, but you got to be very organized and structured so the program can maintain itself year in and year out. But you're going to have some ups and downs because of the draft and losing kids to uh, professional baseball and possibly having some injuries that are unfortunate in certain positions you Oakland, and you're going to have some definitely down times, but for the most part, if you do your job and you compete, you work in golf, stay organized, make sure the kids understand what their role is in the baseball program, for the most part, you'll be somewhat successful and be able to keep your job and thrive with your program. Now, tell me if I may be off here, but you know, I've heard from uh, several different coaches that you coach them harder on the wins than you even do on the losses, and just to to keep that motivation up on, on to keep doing what they're they're continuing to doing and to not getting complacent. Is that is that any, correct at all? Well, for the most part, I think every coach has to coach their, their own personality, Jonathan. I don't think you can say one thing going to work for one coach and not the other. I mean, if we're winning, I, I think we just continue to do what we're doing. If we're losing, I, I, I don't yell and scream and shout at the kids. They understand when I'm upset about something, and mm-hmm. we just got to get after it, you know, compete. But uh, just like when they say, boy, this clubhouse is a real close clubhouse because we're winning. Well, so if you're losing, is the clubhouse, you know, that bad? Did it go bad because you're losing or just bad kids? But, you know, every 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 year is different. That's one of the reasons I love coming up in the Cape Cod League. I, I got 30 kids from 30 different programs. Sometimes we have several kids from the same school. Mm-hmm. But I only have them for two and a half months. The next year I got another 30 guys. Sure, and uh, it's so tough because you know you you don't recruit these guys. Well, you recruit them at some point, but at the most, you know, it's not like you're going to have them for three or four years. So that's an enjoyable part of being in the Cape is you you have thirty guys one year and another thirty the next year, and every team's different. Uh, this past summer was one of the best group of kids we had. They loved each other. They they you know shared shared stories with each other. They talked baseball, and then some years we we don't have that type of ball club, you know. But uh, every every year is different. I mean, I don't think I'd want to coach where I had the same kid for 20 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's nice to have a change of scenery for the coach and the player because the coach gets tired of the player sometimes and players get tired of hearing the same thing over and over again. Sure, sure. Now, as a younger coach, one real struggle that I had was when to push, when to pull, when to put an arm around them or when to kick them in the butt. And so for our younger coaches listening, you know, you said you were in, in baseball for 53 years, and I'm sure you've had countless opportunities to do this. But what would you what advice would you offer them of the of the younger coaches trying to figure out that? Well, I think one of the biggest things is make sure that they understand that we're, we're there for them. But at mm-hmm. the same time, you know, we have rules and regulations and, and a purpose in what we're doing. And uh, the fact is that they have to understand that. And you know, we're not going to variate from my rules. and make individual rules for individual players. Uh, I mean, that's very important that they, uh, you know, you're, when you say what you're saying, you're actually saying it to mean something, and the players will understand that. Uh, where coaches get in trouble is when they have different rules, different years, make different plans, and different just, just to uproot everything that they've done before, and all of a mm-hmm. sudden they're changing again to do something different because it's another group of players. But I think the players I've had in the past understand when I'm not pleased with how we're practicing or how we're playing. But it's, again, it's individual, and if we, you know what buttons to push at the right time, and that's what you learn uh, with the experience. My first year, I'm sure 
at the age of 22 at the University of Arizona as a graduate assistant, I didn't feel very comfortable talking to players about their habits, uh, both on and off the field. But as you get older and older and you can relate to the guys and you get a little bit more power because you make those final decisions as a head coach, uh, they're going to listen to you. But they're not going to listen to you if you have different rules for different players. Everything's going to be the same. And I think that's one of the things that people have always said good things about me is uh, I, I don't change when we win. I don't change from when we lose. I'm mm-hmm. so, so the same. And, and it's not easy to do that because, uh, you know, in baseball, you play every day and you're going to have some winning streaks and losing streaks. But I, I try to get that not too up when uh, when things are going up. and I don't get too, too down when things are going down because the players will understand. The sure. players will, will read your personality quicker than you will. And so if you're not fair with them, you're not concise in your rules and regulations, if they know that you're, you know, partial to certain kids etc it's going to come back to haunt you and all of that and so something that that i love to be able to do and that's put together practice plan and practice design but i know you wrote an entire book about it 570 pages to be exact but can you give us a a couple of tips on how to get the most out of our practices well it's going to be organized i mean that's why i did the playbook i mean Mm -hmm. i felt like it's important especially if you're understaffed and baseball is the most understaffed sport by far my gosh even division one we have less coaches per student athlete by far than any sport, men or women, based on average roster size. And the amazing thing about baseball is so many elements. You know, the base running game, the bunting game, you had nine different positions, hitting, pitching. There's so much to cover. And every coach is frustrated because it feels like I didn't get enough time to work with Johnny at first base or our catchers today. Well, don't get frustrated because everybody's in the same boat. Uh, we say, you know, you have practice days, you can practice because of the weather, and some you can't, and sometimes you got to go inside, and, and you just got to be able to bounce around and make sure that when you have a practice, the kids have a copy of it, always posted in the, in the dugout, in the locker room, in the athletic dorm, dormitory we had it, so they knew at 8 o'clock in the morning what the practice plan was for that day, so they could look at it and become prepared for what we're going to do that day, but I think structure and organization, making sure Every kid feels like when he left practice, he wants to go up to the head coach and thank him for having practice today. Mm-hmm. And I don't think too many kids go up to the coach after <laughs> practice and say, thank you for making me better. Thank you for making my teammates better. Thank you for making our baseball players better and our program better because this practice was outstanding because it, it basically prepared us for games. That's what it's all about, doing things in practice and preparing for what's going to happen in the game. So every player... When something happens in the game, says to himself, I've been there before. Might be a comeback into a pitcher that throws the second. He's been there before over and over again. That doesn't mean he might not make an error, mm-hmm. but he basically has been there over and over again. So it has to be very organized, fast-paced, game speed, and uh, I really believe that practice uh, preparation is the most important thing a coach can learn. Now I mentioned, or I saw that you mentioned on social media on a, a couple of videos that you put out today, actually, that you want to make practices as game-like as possible. And I understand that most would say we want to speed it up to, you know, at least to the level of what we're going to see in a game. But do you have any other things that you would do to make your practices more game-like? There's so many things, and we don't have time to go sure. over every one of them, but you know, the whole key is we, we practice things that happen a lot in the ball games. We we do present things that don't happen much. I mean, why would you work on a shortstop going into the six hole, catching the ball, leaving his feet, going to go to first, 
when it doesn't happen. I mean, you're not going to get it out. And, and, uh, and so we try, try to really spend most of our time on things that happen over and over again, fly ball communication, you know, bunt defense, ground ball communication to the right side, left side, uh, stealing, footwork in the middle infield, things that happen over and over again. And, and like, like for just an example, <clears throat> one example of many when we're hitting, whether off the team, the front toss, side toss, we try to eliminate too much talking about body parts, but I wanted them to simulate in batting practice what's going to happen in the game. So I restrict everything to six cuts. Yeah, once you get six cuts, you step away, let someone else hit, or take about a minute, minute and a half, because <clears throat> in a ball game, you're going to be up you know, every 35 or 45 minutes, and, and uh, you're not going to take more than six cuts unless you foul off a lot of pitches. So mm-hmm. I've always found after the sixth cut in any station you're working at, some kids, especially the younger kids, will lose their 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 mental uh, acuity, and they'll basically uh, they'll they'll shut it down. In other words, they they can only stay focused for maybe six or seven cuts. Then if they get a little tired after seven cuts, they're not duplicating what's happening in the game. I've never seen a hitter get tired at home plate. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Fouls off twenty five pitches in a row and asks the coach to replace him because he he's just too tired to hit. Sure. Well, baseball is is basically spurts. Uh, that's why you don't spend a lot of time uh, practicing inside the park home runs. My gosh, how many times does that happen? Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, take six cuts. It'll keep you mentally sharp, keep you physically sharp, because once the eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, even off the tee, you're duplicating nothing that's happening in the ballgame. Because you get a little bit fatigued mentally and physically, go back off, think about what's going on, come back in and get six more. And I think that's just one example or trying to duplicate what's happened in the ballgame. I like to have the guys even hitting off the team with a helmet on. Mm-hmm. That's what they're going to wear in the game. I like to have their full uniform on. That's what's going to happen in the game. I like to even have the team have a bar behind home plate. Simulate, hey, we're in the ballgame. You can duplicate practices to make them feel like this is happening over and over again. i got to perfect my skill in this part of the game. And then make it as, as lively as you can. And give breaks. I mean, you can't go full speed. Like, Shark's not taking down balls before a coach is thundering him during batting practice and tells him, I'm going to hit you about 30 ground balls in a row, and I want you to move your feet or fill the ball to first and second. Well, after the fifth or sixth one, the boy's going to get tired, all right? Mm-hmm. And he's going to slow down, take bad angles, sit back, and then he's not duplicating once in the game. I'd rather take three or four ground balls, take a break, come back and take three or four more to duplicate what's going to happen in both games. Sure, sure. Now I know that you're you've been around for a little while, but to you know to say the least, I guess, and you're very seasoned in in the game of baseball. And like you mentioned again, fifty three years, which is a monumental accomplishment. Which I would love to be able to have that career and and to be in as good a shape as you are as well. But are there any new things that are considered, I guess we could say, new school that you're currently embracing that you may not have in the past? Well, there's a lot of new things coming along the pike. You know, bases are still 90 feet apart, and I think a lot of people are trying to reinvent the game, and I'm, I'm not against the analytical part of it, the shifting and the launch angles and spin rates. And, you know, people are getting paid to, to do that. And I mean, even in college baseball, people are now using audiovisual a lot more, filming every swing a kid has in practice and games, and sometimes you analyze too much. You know, you start thinking about too much when you go to the plate or you make a pitch, and Want to make everything, make sure all your angles and your arm and your legs are in the same spot instead of just forming and, and doing your doing what you can do. And so, uh, you know, what, what we try to do is don't clone people. I mean, one time uh, I had a, uh, you know, Raphael Palmer and Will Clark, two of the best hitters ever 
the Deucey Cows baseball, and they go on pro ball. And, and uh, I think Will was named the prettiest swing in one league, and Raphael the prettiest swing in the other. Well, one of them was a punt for it. That was a back hitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can't take total credit for it. It's not, not, you're not cloning people, but I think everybody wants to touch people too much sometimes. They want to say, hey, I, I fixed this guy. I fixed this guy's release point in his slider. And I fixed his, his drive off the pitching rubber. And I, I fixed his hits. I fixed this and fixed that. You might have done it. But at the same time, uh, you know, we start thinking about too many body parts and it makes it difficult to perform at a high level. Sure. And that, and that honestly led me right into my next question, which I was going to ask about, you know, Palmero and Will Clark and beautiful swings, two of my favorite swings, swings of all time. What was it like having both of those guys at the same time? And I would love to be able to hear some stories if you've got any. Well, I mean, there's a lot of stories. Time doesn't allow it. You know, I don't know if you saw the uh, ESPN, SEC, Thunder and Lightning mm-hmm. program. It's been on for hundreds of times, but that people could see those swings on that, that show. I mean, they come along, really. We you know, almost lost for FPL. He was the fourth draft, draft pick in the Mets, and, you know, they, they offered him $35,000, but now they don't even be scratch money. And Clark, Clark just wanted $4,000 more dollars from the Kansas City Royals. He, was, he wasn't going to go to school, and they wouldn't come up $4,000. <laughs> so we were lucky to get him, and we had another group of great players in that team, and everyone thinks that 85 team was the best we have, and it was a great ball club, but we had other ball clubs equally as good because we had frowning players, you know, one through nine, we were very solid and sound pitching staff, but uh, you know, Ralph and Manuel uh, had great careers, now retired now and enjoying their life. Proud of them and proud of all the players that I've had a pleasure coaching all these years, and and now I got 35 guys in the UAB, and I'm a part of their life. So that keeps me going, keeps me alive, and keeps me strong, and I enjoy every day I go to work. I love that, and, and I hope that I can look back at when I'm, whenever I'm, I'm older and, and have some of the same stories that you do. And, you know, I, I know you don't know this about me, but I'm sure our listeners do, that I'm an avid Red Sox fan. And so I, I would be remiss to, to not ask you if you have any Mitch Moreland stories or anything that, that you know, that, <laughs> that he left with you guys. Well, the bad thing, I coached up in the Cape an hour and a half from Fenway Park, and I haven't got up to see my boy. You know, we get very few off days there. Mm-hmm. When we do, we get some things we got to deal with. And But uh, Mitch is a great, great person, and uh, he got he signed after his junior year. We lost him for the senior year. And I lost him because he, he did real well in the home run derby up in the Cape Cod League when the Texas Ranger front office guy said whatever he wants to sign him. And they signed him as a pitcher. And mm-hmm. uh, I told uh, the Rangers at the time, I said, no, you know, fine, but why don't you let them hit too? Which in most cases in pro baseball, they, they really shy away from doing it. I said, you're going to get two for one here. Why wouldn't you allow a boy to, to swing the bat if he can do that and pitch at the same time? And mm-hmm. kind of goes against the grain. But, uh, you know, Mitch was a good pitcher for us. He was a right fielder, first baseman, and pitch for us uh, mm-hmm. in release most of the time. So, you know, he signs, and all of a sudden, uh, I think he pissed a little bit, and they said, this guy can swing the bat a little bit, and uh, they made him into a, a hitter, and he's uh, done very well for himself and his family, and he's a fixture right now with the Red Sox. Oh, definitely, and he actually got an inning this year, and the whole Red Sox fan base was so surprised that he came in, and, and I think he was 92, 93. I, I don't know when the last time he got on a mound was, but felt like it was he was riding a bike, just hopped on there. I think he had two strikeouts, and 
and that was it. So pretty impressive. I would, I would, yeah, I would not. I mean, I, I, he was good for us in the mile, no question. But he's a country boy. He's just from Northeast mm-hmm. Mississippi, a small town, and uh, but uh, he's an athlete. He's a big boy, as you can see, and uh, he developed his skills. And he's a great first baseman. My gosh, he's I think uh, won the Gold Glove at first base, and, mm-hmm. but he can pitch. I mean, I mean, he's one of these guys that can step on the mound and throw strikes. So you know, I don't understand why in pro ball. Uh, there, there are a couple of cases now in the last few years where guys signed out of college who've done both for given that opportunity. And, but eventually they decide, hey, you're just going to pitch, you're going to hit. But I think in Mitch's case, I think he can do both. No, definitely. He's a, he's a stud. And, and so let's talk a, lot, a little bit about your own personal learning. And, and again, I know you're, you're somebody that is constantly looking for you know, something new, which says something after being in the game for as long as you have. But what's the latest thing that you've learned that's gotten you really excited? I tell you what, I mean, I, off the top of my head, not really much. Uh, you know, the thing is, uh, I, I, like in the Cape Town League, I'm working with the very best young college players in the country, and I tell them all the time when we have our orientation meetings, you know, you, you don't belong to us. You know, going mm-hmm. to Florida State or Arizona State or Ole Miss or Mississippi State, and so we're not gonna we're not gonna change anything. And if you have a problem with something, if you're getting hammered inside running out of bat or you can't throw strikes. We got we got some people on our staff can can be of service to you. And uh, but we don't videotape up there. We it's just pure baseball is all it is and but the new stuff, you know, we do have you know, we have people come around all the time showing us gadgets for this and gadgets for that. And I, I remember in Mississippi State it seemed like once a month someone would call me and said, I got an invention I want to show you and I said, well, come on out and give me a call. And I'll set some time and let me take a look at it. And they show me this new batting tee or this gadget or something else to make sure you won't step in the bucket anymore. And I said, well, just leave it here. And they said, well, you endorse it. I said, fine. I'd be happy to endorse it. It looks pretty good to me. Whether I use it or not, I'm not, I'm not sure. But I'd be happy to, if it helps you sell something, I'd be happy to endorse it. But uh, I'm not into, into, you know, the social media. It's not in, I'm from the old school, I guess. And, and I'm probably the young listeners are probably saying, this guy's from the old ages. Well, I, I, it's worked for me, and it works now. I relate well to kids. Kids relate well to me. And why should I change? And why should I all of a sudden be thinking about what else can I do new to make reinvent the ball game? You know what I mean? I understand. Now, I, I know that you're really passionate about this topic, and I wanted to save this. I guess this question for last, but I know you're really passionate about, you know, how how the NCAA is not in an ideal state. So, uh, you know, I, without taking, you know, a couple of hours, which I'm sure you could, what are your thoughts on how you would fix the NCAA if they put you in charge tomorrow? Well, the NCAA has not been very favorable to college baseball, and a lot of people don't realize that. Baseball at uh, Division One is the second largest producer revenue for the NCAA in championships. And mm-hmm. when I say that, I've done so many talk shows on this, and and I mean I have so many clinics, and I and they say, well, anybody sitting and listening to me when I say that, say, well, football is W one, men's basketball too. Well, the NCAA doesn't get a dime for football. It goes to the bowls, the conferences, participating schools, and a distribution plan. Okay, men's basketball is way ahead of baseball because of TV contract and the, and the large venues. But baseball, because of regional, super regionals, Omaha, America Trade, $25 tickets for seats, the sky suites. One of the second largest producer revenues for the NCAA with deadlines 
in everything, everything. Mm-hmm. They took our graduate assistant program away from us several years ago, an entry-level position for the young coach to get a degree and help out and learn the game uh, at Division One Baseball. They took it away from us now. They give football six and women's crew even get the graduate assistant, okay? Mm-hmm. But we're dead last in scholarships. I mean, we're on the bottom not even close to anybody else in regard to average roster size. I've done study after study. I attack the NCAA everywhere I go for what they've done to our sport. I take a lot of credit for ESPN and, and College World Series, but the credit should go to these coaches who have to, you know, shovel their field in snow and, and work for, work miracles with 11.7 scholarships. They're understaffed and have to deal with all the academics and other things that you have to deal with. Uh, we're, 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 we're in the bottom of every, everything. Mm-hmm. 11.7, um, gosh, women's crew, and I have nothing against women's crew. They get 20 full scholarships. Women's softball had passed us by. And, uh, and we're all, we're any sport that has a roster restriction of 35, <clears throat> which means we're, we're denying the 36 kid to come in my office that has to come out. We have to tell them you can't because we're the only sport that has a roster restriction. We're the only sport in, in, in NCAA, men and women, a partial scout is a sport that the boy gets fired or dumped or extracted because he's not as good as Coach thought he would be, and he tells him, go find someplace else. The boy has to sit out a year if he wants to go to another NCAA one school. It's called dumping, fire, and extracting. is happening all over the country, especially in the park conferences where coaches are making a lot of money and they're putting people in the stands, and they got to continue to get better and better. So kids lose that opportunity. So the only sport that we have to be eligible one semester prior to semester of the competition. We got seven sanctions, Jonathan. No other sport has them. So I fought the NCAA tooth and nail. I was somewhat by myself, had some support some coaches, but I felt uh, at my age, when I retired from Mississippi State at 60, or 64, can't remember. I was just tired of fighting, and uh, and unfortunately, we had no leadership at all. No one fights, and I think that's what the NCAA says. We can do anything to baseball. They ain't going to say a word except maybe two or three coaches. But all the coaches are totally upset, and the NCAA won on the NCAA. I say it's no clue about anything organization when it comes to baseball, and it's frustrating, but at the same time, I'm, I licked my wounds. I put the amendments together. got the override votes together. As a head baseball coach, and I was basically doing the job of a, an association president trying to fight the rules that the NCAA has pinned on college baseball. And I lost the battle, and I knew if I stayed in Mississippi State with a roster restriction, I'd be forced to do something I've never done in my life. Just the way, based on performance, to tell a kid on scholarship, I want you to leave and go someplace else because I need the money for another player. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to finish my career doing it. And at UAB, we don't do it. We don't dump kids. We don't stack kids. Now, the guy, you know, the guy robs the bank of one set of school. That's another story. Sure. But uh, we're one of the few programs left uh, that uh, basically take care of the kids. You recruit them and get them better. And if they don't get better, then it's probably your fault. You recruit the wrong person. But uh, pat them on the back and, and wish them well. And, and don't just leave them out and, and hang out to dry and then have to sit out a year if he wants to go to another D1 school. So, that's the NCAA. A lot of people want to know why they hate baseball. It's very simple. Uh, these presidents who run the NCAA now. I, I went to the first convention at Georgia Southern to an NCAA convention because their athletic director, Jack Clements, passed away of a heart attack. It was out in San Francisco, and there wasn't any president at such a meeting. We had, we had panels. We wanted to vote. 
you stuck your paddle in. There was no electronics then to <laughs> pass your vote. And, and it, all it was was conference commissioners and athletic directors and some coaches from football, basketball, baseball, other sports. And all of a sudden, the president took over. And of course, these people are very intelligent. Sometimes don't have very much common sense. And so the president basically run all the committees and all that. And uh, they don't like baseball because, unfortunately, we're... We're, we're, we're a sport that has become too white. It's so unfortunate because of the fact that even low economic whites or Hispanics or blacks, we just they don't have a chance because sure. of partial scholarships. And uh, we're boys and they're a Title IX organization. I've, I never blessed Title IX. I just present the facts. We're, where's Title X? Mm-hmm. Baseball is a discriminated sport now. And because of showcases, travel ball, clinics, lessons, camps, you gotta have some money now. Parents gotta have some money to expose their kids. So we're up, we're upper class people, unfortunately, right. that are boys. And because of that, the NCAA says we don't like you. We'll take your money. Thank you for contributing to our treasury. But uh, just go ahead and find another another source because we're not for you. I think uh, you know most of our listeners understand and and completely get that, especially the ones in the NCAA right now and. If you watch the College World Series, I, I don't think it's for lack of interest, to say the least. You know, just for the sake of time, uh, I'll link your social media and website below. But is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners or share with our listeners before you go tonight? No, I've enjoyed the interview. You've got great questions. I hope uh, you continue to do this. And, and I'm sure that you're uh, doing a great service to not only the coaches in the state of Oklahoma, but nationwide, the people listening to this. Uh, you do you do a good job of, uh, of asking questions, Joe. All right. Well, Coach, I, I appreciate it. And it and truly was an honor to be able to interview you tonight. But I just, uh, again, I want to thank you for being on the show. And, and thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. Before you go, I'd love to be able to get in touch with you. And we have several different ways of doing so. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AOTC underscore podcast. You can join the AOTC Coaches Facebook group. And if you want to be a part of the mini clinic emails, both of those links are listed below. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating or review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.